We're back in, in our Genesis series. Open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 29. If you have one of our welcome table Bibles, it's on page 24. We're going to start in verse 31 and work our way through the end of chapter 30 this morning. Uh, yes, work our way to the end of chapter 30 this morning. So Genesis 29, 31 is where we're going to start. So if you can get there, we'll go from there. And again, we're going to be reminded uh, once again, I hope you're seeing this theme throughout Genesis uh, uh, of the mess that we create by our own sin, but also the mercy that God conveys through his own son. All of this is laying the groundwork for the good news of the gospel that leads us to Jesus Christ. So I have a question for you this morning. Do you live in a dysfunctional family? I see some laughter. Do you contribute to that dysfunction? I see some head nods. If so, listen, this passage might feel like a, a family gathering for you, okay? Um, but if you've ever experienced the grace of God in spite of your dysfunction, then this passage will also be a helpful reminder of what God is able to do with our messes. So I want to, I want to, I know we just had our, our prayer time on. I want to pray again that, that the Lord would guide us. Father, may your word make us wise for salvation in Jesus Christ through faith in him. And may your word equip us to live freely in obedience to him. We love you and we pray this for Christ's glory. Amen. You remember those mini infomercials that used to be on TV where a man and a, a woman typically would be standing there reminiscing about like the great disco classics of the 1970s or, or, or the, the hair bands of the 80s or like all the smooth light rock of the 90s? Anybody ever bought something from that? I'd like to borrow it if you have. Like, like you, you, we've probably all seen like these, right? You, you probably remember this. They have these, these lists of, of, of the greatest hits that would scroll up like the, like the end of a movie, you know, credits at the end of the movie. And, and then they would play snippets of the songs and they'd show clips from uh, these hilarious clips from these old music videos of the artists singing those things, right? Today, we're going to listen to some, a, a remix of some of the greatest hits of Genesis, but it has nothing to do with Phil Collins or Peter Gabriel, these greatest hits make up an album that really none of us would want to buy if we were honest, but unfortunately, they just keep seem, seeming to show up in our, in our playlist, and not only in the book of Genesis, but also in our lives. Today, we're going to hear these familiar tunes of desperation and favoritism and jealousy and fighting and passivity and deception and manipulation and backstabbing and self-reliance, all things we've already seen in Genesis. All tunes we've already heard, but if we listen carefully, we'll also hear those sweet notes of God's compassion and grace. And the underlining melody through all of it is this, okay? God blesses his people according to his promises and in spite of our sin. God blesses his people according to his promises and in spite of our sin. His blessings are the result of his grace and not, uh, if you will... Before, before I, I read from our passage this morning, I want to take us back, uh, if you will, in that infomercial style. No, no I'm not going to actually like, you know, hey, remember those. 
I want to take us back to the Garden of Eden for a moment and remind us of some things that God said after the serpent deceived Eve and she and Adam sinfully rebelled against God. Genesis 3, 14 through 16. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, because you have deceived the woman, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. And here's the glorious promise that we keep coming back to in Genesis 3.15. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Then verse 16. God said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. Now, after the sinful fall in the garden, God promised to bring a serpent crusher through the family line of Eve, the one who would come and defeat Satan and sin and and death forever. And so far, we've seen that promise carried through, uh, carried forward through the line of Abraham and then narrowed further through Isaac and not uh, uh, Ishmael, and now through Jacob and not Esau. But none of these men we've seen are the long-awaited serpent crusher. Why? Because every one of these men has proven by their own sinful ways that they are in need of rescue and they are not the rescuer, right? So we're still waiting for the serpent crusher, but God continues with these little echoes of Genesis 3.15 through this family line. He's coming, he's coming. Back in the garden, God also said that because of sin, women would bear children with painful effort and there would be an ongoing battle for control between uh, uh, would be with one another, wife, because each one would be more concerned with themselves than they would be with one another. So if you're a woman in here and you've ever had a child, you understand labor pains, Right? But there's a sense in which this painful effort in childbearing refers not just to the physical pain of delivering a baby, but also to the relational pain of conceiving one. And we're going to see proof of that in our story today. We're going to see these things that we've heard in the garden. Both the promise of the serpent crusher and the devastating consequences of sin and rebellion against God. So let's take a look. Genesis 29, starting in verse 31. The Lord saw that Leah was unloved. I gotta find my place. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was unable to conceive. Leah conceived, gave birth to a son, and named him Reuben, for she said, The Lord has seen my affliction. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, gave birth to a son, and said, The Lord heard that I am unloved and has given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. She conceived again gave birth to a son and said, at last, my husband will become attached to me because I have borne three sons for him. Therefore, he was named Levi. And she conceived again, gave birth to a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah. Then Leah stopped having children. Verse 31 says that Leah was neglected. The sense in the Hebrew here is that she was hated or unloved by Jacob. Just one verse earlier, we ended this uh, when we were in Genesis a couple weeks ago. The last verse we read told us that Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. You ever felt unloved? You ever felt rejected by someone else while someone else got what you wanted? 
then you know how Leah feels. And even though Laban had tricked Jacob into marrying Leah, he couldn't make Jacob love Leah. But, in, but the Lord, in his compassion, saw the unloved Leah, and he opened her womb, but he kept Rachel barren for the time being. Now, we need to be reminded of a couple things here. First, God shows no favoritism. Not once, not ever. He told Moses in Exodus 33, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Anybody want to argue with God? It's his sovereign choice, and he does it because he is good. Right? We sang it, holy, holy, Lord Almighty, good and gracious King. And he does it not because anybody deserves it, but because he is good. He often shows compassion to those who are neglected and mistreated by others. The other thing that we need to remember is that God is working his grace into a, a, a sinful situation here. Isn't it, isn't it like us to want to look at what the people are doing and then judge what God is doing based on those things? What we need to do is pay attention to what God is doing based on what God wants to do in those things and see how that affects the people where they're at. God is working his grace into a sin, sinful situation here. Jacob is married to two from Genesis. Nowhere in Scripture does God ever say that that's okay. He's already made it clear from Genesis 2 that his design for marriage is one man and one woman until death do you part. God never rewards sin, but he does redeem sinners, and his actions in this story are for that purpose. We need to keep that in mind because it's going to get crazy messy. Leah doesn't see what God is doing right away. She tries to find her identity in Jacob rather than in the Lord. She wants love from her husband so badly that she fails to see God's own love for her until she has her fourth son. The names of her sons correspond to the statements that she makes about each one when he's born. Reuben means see because the Lord has seen her affliction. Simeon means hear because the Lord has heard that she is neglected. Levi means attached because Leah also assumed that Jacob would finally be attached to her since she gave him three sons. But again, she can't make him love her either. So the fourth son she names Judah. Judah means praise because she's starting to see. She doesn't have a full grasp on it, but she's starting to see God's grace in opening her womb. This time, I will praise the Lord. It's an imperfect view, but God is weaving his grace. Jacob, four sons, but Rachel, Leah has now given birth to, to four sons. She's given Jacob four sons, but Rachel's still unable to conceive, and she's getting desperate. Look at chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she envied her sister. Give me sons or I will die, she said to Jacob. Jacob became angry with Rachel and said, am I in God's place? Who, is, who has withheld offspring from you? And then, he said, he, or then she said, Here is my maid Bilhah. Go sleep with her and, bear, and she'll bear children for me so that through her too, I too can build a family. So Rachel gave her slave Bilhah to Jacob as a wife and he slept with her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Rachel said, God has vindicated me. Yes, he has heard me and given me a son. So she named him Dan. 
Rachel's slave Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Rachel said, in my wrestlings with God, I have wrestled with my sister and won, and she, and she named him Naphtali. So rather than being happy for her sister, Rachel envied Leah. And we know this, right? Jealousy never leads anywhere good. It never leads anywhere good. Her outcry to Jacob in verse 1, it's a little melodramatic, similar to Esau when he claimed that he would die if Jacob wouldn't, didn't give him the bowl of stew. And the irony here is that Rachel actually will die giving birth to her second son in chapter 35 when she has Benjamin. But for now, she's still barren and she's still in despair. Verse 2 is the first time that Jacob speaks about God since God had appeared to him in the dream back in chapter 28. But Jacob's words aren't entirely favorable here. While he understands that it's God who has the power to open the womb, Jacob seems to be blaming God for keeping Rachel's womb closed. He's essentially telling Rachel here, what do you want me to do about it? This is God's fault, not mine. Instead of praying for Rachel when she was barren, like Isaac did for Rebekah when she was barren, Jacob goes back a few generations and instead echoes his grandma Sarah. Remember what she told Abraham back in chapter 16? Since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. I can build a family. Rather than trusting God and waiting on his promise, Sarah tried to take matters into her own hands. Jacob blames, her, blames God like she does, but Jacob isn't the only one that's echoing Sarah's words here. Rachel sounds and acts like Sarah here when she then turns and gives her slave to Jacob, Bilhah, gives her to him as his wife. Now, if you're keeping track, that's wife number three. Things are only getting messier and more complicated here. Rather than telling Rachel this was a bad idea, Jacob went along with it just like Abraham did with Sarah in chapter 16. So not only do we have polygamy here, but there's also slavery here. And we need to be clear on, that the Bible never encourages and never endorses either one of these things. Not once. They always appear as evidence of a corrupted humanity and the sinful nature of the human heart. What we're seeing here is exactly what God said would happen in Genesis 3. There will be strife among you, turmoil, painful labor, Husband and wife, you won't get along because you each want what you want. But these sinful situations also serve as the occasions through which God displays his mercy and grace to undeserving people. You know why God works in messy situations? Because that's all he has to work with, right? Bilhah bears two sons to, to Jacob, and Rachel adopts them as her own children by giving them names. She names them instead of, uh, instead of letting Bilhah name them. Judged or, or vindicated, it's made about them. The, the name Dan means judged or, or vindicated. She said, the Lord has vindicated me. Naphtali means wrestle. Uh, and, and in verse 8, when Rachel says, in my wrestlings with God... The sense there in the Hebrew is not that she, she was wrestling against God, but that she thought that God was on her side as she wrestled against her sister. Your translation, if you don't have the CSB, might say something more like, uh, in my mighty wrestlings with my sister. 
She thinks God is, is on her side because she's gaining sons through her slave. In this, in this sibling rivalry, Rachel thinks that she has won. Let's keep reading. Easily, remember the saying, anything you can do, I can do better? Let's keep reading. Look at verse 9. While she was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a... Sh nope. Wrong chapter. We already read that. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her slave Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's slave Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, what good fortune. And she named him Gad. When Leah's slave... Bore, when Leah's slave Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, Leah said, I am happy that the women call me happy. And so she named him Asher. Instead of being content with the four sons that God had given to her, Leah gets greedy. She's not praising God right now. She's scrambling to try and up the score against Rachel. Oh, Rachel gained two on me. I got to keep going, right? And so Leah gives her slave to Jacob, keeping tracks, wife number four. Zilpah gives Jacob two sons, just as Rachel's slave Bilhah did. And again, the names coincide with the statements made about them. Gad means good fortune. Asher means happy. But this feud is far from over. And as we're about to see, it gets really, really weird. Okay? The, 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 the competition between Leah and Rachel intensifies. Look at verse 14 of chapter 30. Reuben, this is Leah's son, firstborn son, went out during the wheat harvest and found some mandrakes in the field. When he brought them to his mother, Leah, Rachel asked, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But Leah replied to her, isn't it enough that you've taken my husband? Now you all have mandrakes. When well then, Rachel said, he can sleep with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the field and that evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come with me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So Jacob slept with her that night. God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my slave to my husband. And she named him Issachar. Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. God has given me a good gift, Leah said. This time my husband will honor me because I have borne six sons for him. And she named him Zebulun. Later Leah bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Now, there's been a lot of commentary written about these mandrakes. Some commentators have noted that the mandrakes were, were thought to, to uh, be an aphrodisiac and that their roots were shaped like a, a human being with a head and arms and, and legs. And so they were superstitiously thought to increase fertility for the people who ate them. But other commentators point out that the, that particular kind of mandrake plant wasn't known to grow in this region where they're at. The text doesn't really clarify one way or the other for us but it doesn't matter because the point in this, these verses is not the symbolism of the mandrake, but rather the competition between the two sisters. They're getting crazy. They're buying their husband from one another. Whatever Rachel believes about the mandrake, she's willing to give up a night with Jacob in order to have him. And just as Jacob had purchased Esau's birthright with a bowl of stew, Leah purchases conjugal rights to Jacob for a night with the mandrakes. And as a result, she conceives again and has another son, 
Issachar. His name means reward. Now, Leah claims that God has rewarded her for giving her slave to her husband as a wife, but we know that's not true, right? Why? Because God never rewards sin, but he does redeem sinners. Leah's perception is off here. Issachar is not a reward from God, but he is a gift from God. He should have been named Zebulun if she was really paying attention. Because what did she call Zebulun? A gift, right? She recognizes that Zebulun is a gift, but she also thinks that Jacob will finally honor her because of him. She's still looking for her identity in her husband. After having six sons, Leah has a daughter named Dinah, but there's no statement made about Dinah here. And that's on purpose because this is, this is, the author has inserted this comment in here for us and he's preparing us for what's going to happen to Dinah in chapter 34. If you've been following through Genesis with us, you've seen that. Names will be brought up several chapters before that their story gets told. That's what's happening here. And then after all this competition, all this chaos, we see another moment of grace in these next few verses. Look at verse 22. And then God remembered Rachel. God has taken away my disgrace and her womb. She conceived and bore a son, and she said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, May the Lord add another son to me. In that day, and really in the Jewish culture, carried through for several generations, to be barren was thought to be a sign of divine disapproval. And so when Rachel finally conceives and has a son, she joyfully exclaims, God has removed my disgrace. He, he's taken it away. The name Joseph means add to. And the, the, the verb taken away in Hebrew, it's a, it's a pun. It's a play on this. God has taken away my disgrace. Now let him add to, to me another son. And God will answer that. That request will be granted in chapter 35 when the Lord gives her another son, Benjamin. When Jacob fled Beersheba and headed to Haran, you remember? He left with nothing. Not one thing. And through the messiness and dysfunction of Jacob's passive marriages to four women, and through the heated sibling rivalry between Leah and Rachel, God graciously brought about 11 of the 12 sons that would make up the beginning of the nation of Israel. Do you remember God's promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? I will multiply you greatly. I will make you a great nation. God is keeping his promise. And he's doing it in the midst of some crazy stuff. But it wasn't just Jacob's family that would multiply here. So let's keep reading. Look at verse 25. After Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me on my way so that I can return to my homeland. Give me my wives and my children that I have worked for and let me go. You know how hard I've worked for you. But Laban said to him, If I found favor, favor with you, stay. I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Then Laban said, Name your wages and I will pay them. So Jacob said to him, You know how I have served you and how your herds have fared with me, for you had very little before I came, but now your wealth has increased. The Lord has blessed you because of me. And now when will I also do something for my own family? Laban asked, What should I give you? And Jacob said, You don't need to give me anything. If you do this one thing for me, I'll continue to shepherd and keep your flock. Let me go through all your sheep today and remove every sheep 
that is speckled or spotted, every dark-colored sheep among the lambs, and the spotted and speckled among the female goats. Such will be my wages. In the future, when you come check on my wages, my honesty will testify for me. If I have any female goats that are not speckled or spotted, or any lambs that are not black, they will be considered stolen. Good, Laban said. Let it be just as you have said. Now, this conversation sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Last time Laban asked Jacob to name his wages, Jacob said he would work for Laban for free, free of charge for seven years in exchange for Rachel's hand in marriage. Seven years goes by, but Jacob, uh, uh, just combined Laban and Jacob. Laban tricks Jacob into marrying his older daughter Leah instead, right? And then he coaxes Jacob into working another seven years by giving him Rachel as his wife too. But Jacob can't keep working for free now. He's got this big and growing family to provide for. And he wants to return with them to the land of Canaan, his homeland. It's the land of promise that God has promised to, 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 to uh, multiply him and make him a great nation in. But Laban has grown accustomed to the blessings that he has received through Jacob. Remember that just as God promised to bless the nations through Abraham and through Isaac, he also promised to bless the nations through Jacob. Laban is experiencing that. Laban liked the Lord's blessings, but he didn't worship the Lord, at least not exclusively. He practiced divination, which is strictly forbidden by God later on in the book of Deuteronomy. Laban knows he can't make Jacob stay any longer. He's, he's completed his work. He's done all, fulfilled all, the, all of his obligations. Jacob's already worked 14 years that he promised to work for Laban, but Laban doesn't want him to leave, right? Why? Why wouldn't you? I'm being blessed by you. You need to stay. It's not because Laban loves his son-in-law. It's because he loves the blessings that come with his son-in-law. And so Laban sweetens the pot once again to try to get Jacob to stay, and he tells Jacob again, name your wages. Whatever you want, I'll pay it. And once again, Jacob isn't after a paycheck from Laban. Instead, he tells Laban that he'll stay and shepherd Laban's flocks if he can have all the speckled, all the spotted, and all the dark-colored sheep, as well as the speckled and spotted goats from the flock. Now, this posed very little risk to Laban because the overwhelming majority of the sheep uh, in, in that flock in, in those days were born solid white and the goats were born solid black or solid brown and all of those are off limits to Jacob. I get a kick out of what Jacob says in verse 33. He says, my honesty will testify for me. Since when have we seen Jacob be honest? Right? Not a great track record. But nonetheless, his proposal is clear. If he ends up with a solid white sheep or a solid dark goat, then everybody will know that he will, will be clear. So there is an element there that he will, will keep his word. Laban agrees to the deal, but we can't say that his honesty testifies for him because look what he does next. Verse 35. That day Laban removed the streaked and spotted male goats and all the speckled and spotted female goats. Every one that had any white on it, and every dark-colored one among the lambs, and he placed his sons in charge of them. He put a three-day journey between himself and Jacob. Jacob, meanwhile, was shepherding the rest of Laban's flock. So after agreeing to the deal, uh, Laban takes all the sheep and the goats that Jacob could take for himself, that Jacob had asked for, 
and he gives them to his sons instead. Cheater, cheater, pumpkin eater, right? He's stacking the deck, so to speak. Not only does he reduce the flock that Jacob can choose from to start with, but then he puts enough distance between the flocks to make it virtually impossible for them to breed with one another and produce more of the ones that Jacob should get. Laban's sons have all the speckled, spotted, and streaked goats, and they have all the dark-colored lambs while Jacob is stuck with the solid white sheep and dark-colored goats. He cannot keep those, or everyone would know that he stole them. But he can't get the ones that his son has, or that Laban's sons have, because Laban gave them to him. So we know how Jacob operates, though, right? The deceiver has already been deceived once by Laban, and he's surely not going to let that happen again. Look at verse 37. Jacob then took branches of fresh poplar, almond, and plain wood and peeled the bark, exposing white stripes on the branches. He set the peeled branches in the troughs in front of the sheep and the water channels where the sheep came to drink, and the sheep bred when they came to drink. The flocks bred in front of the branches and bore streaked, speckled, and spotted young. Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks Face the streaked sheep and the completely dark sheep in Laban's flock were breeding. Jacob placed the branch apart and didn't put them with Laban's sheep. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob placed the branches in the troughs in full view of the flocks, and they would breed in front of the branches. As for the weaklings of the flocks, he did not put out the branches. So it turned out that the weak sheep belonged to Laban and the stronger ones to Jacob. And the man became very rich. He had many flocks, female and male slaves, and camels and donkeys. Now, this is a little confusing to follow, but here's what we need to know. Essentially, Jacob is manipulating the flock in order to end up not only with the streaked, speckled, and spotted ones, but also with the strongest ones. But just like it was possible that he was being superstitious by putting these branches in the troughs, but just like it was with the mandrakes, it's not about the plant here, okay? It's about God's power to bring about what God intends, even in the midst of sinful human efforts. The branches do not make the sheep speckled and spotted and streaked. God does. God does. And in verse 43, it gives us a summary, not just of what Jacob has acquired, but more importantly, what God has done for him. It says that Jacob became very rich, in the Hebrew, it literally says, the man spread out very much, very much. Isn't that peculiar? The man spread out very much, very much. You remember God's promise to Jacob in chapter 28? Chapter 28, verse 13 and 15, through 15. The Lord was standing there beside him saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land on which you are lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out toward the west, the east, the north, and the south. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land for I, in all the chaos created I have done, what I have promised you. Do you know what we just saw in all the chaos created by this dysfunctional family? We saw the devastating consequences of sin that God spoke about in the Garden of Eden. But you know what else we saw? We saw God's grace in the midst of it. 
We saw God beginning to fulfill his promises to Jacob. God is blessing a man who clearly does not deserve it here. And that man is receiving the blessing because God promised to give it to him. And God always, always, always keeps his promises. Always. In his compassion and grace, God enabled both Leah and Rachel to bear sons to Jacob in spite of their sinful rivalry with one another. And in the final section of the book of Genesis, we're going to see how God uses Rachel's son, Joseph, to preserve and build this nation of Israel while they remain in Egypt. But it's through Leah's son, Judah, that God will preserve the promise that he made in the Garden of Eden to bring a serpent crusher who would defeat sin and Satan and death forever. It's through this dysfunctional family that another son would be born. And he would be named Jesus. Why? You know what the statement was made after that? Because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves. And Jesus, the serpent crusher, brought about salvation for his people by taking our sins upon himself, by dying on the cross in our place and removing God's wrath against us and replacing it with his own righteousness so that we would be permanently reconciled to God. And God the Father rose Jesus, God the Son, from the grave on the third day to show that the payment for our sins was complete and to crush the power of Satan, sin, and death forever. Do you know what all this means for us? It means that there is no amount of dysfunction that God cannot redeem for our good and his glory. Aren't you glad? If he can work through this gigantic mess to bring about the fulfillment of his gracious promises, then trust me, he can work through your mess and he can work through my mess no matter how big and how dysfunctional we make it. But because Jesus has already come and we've received this gracious gift of salvation in him, there's no reason for us to continue in dysfunction. Our lives should no longer be characterized by desperation, favoritism, jealousy, fighting, passivity, deception, manipulation, backstabbing, and self-reliance. Why? Because everything that we are trying to achieve by those means, we've already been given in Christ. And it can only be found in Him. He's ours already. And because we have Christ, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavens along with Him. You see, we've been adopted into a new family as God's children fully and dearly loved by him. And this new family is not marked by dysfunction and rivalry, but by self-sacrificial love for one another and joyful service to each other. It's a family that's marked by grace because we know that Christ, who was rich, became poor for our sake so that by his poverty we might become rich. Not with material wealth, but with spiritual wealth. Not with earthly things, but with eternal things. Are you a part of this family? Do you know the grace of God in Jesus Christ or are you still living in dysfunction? If you're living in dysfunction, you don't have to try to fix everything before you come to Christ. Listen to me. You can't. You can't fix anything. Even the things you think you've fixed, they're broken and they'll stay broken. 
If we've learned anything about human effort from our passage today, it's this. Dysfunction breeds more dysfunction. Sin breeds more sin. And we all need help. When we try to fix our own messes, they get bigger, not smaller. Only Christ can bring order to your chaos and give you a new beginning, and he will do exactly that if you turn from your sins and trust in him. We approach the throne of grace, right? We sang about that. And we find help in our time of need. So why not come? Come to Jesus. He won't turn you away. He won't look at your dysfunction and say, "Mm, nope, anything but that. That is a lie from the serpent. There is no sin that Christ cannot redeem on the cross. There is no power of hell, no will of man, nothing that the serpent can throw at you that Christ himself cannot and will not overcome. So come to him. Listen, do you feel unloved like Leah did? Then look to Christ, who proved his love for us at the cross. Do you feel disgraced like Rachel did? Then look to Christ, who bore our shame while he was being crucified. Do you feel cheated like Jacob did? Then look to Christ, dying in our, who paid the wages of our sin in full by dying in our place. You see, Jesus Christ is God's grace for our dysfunctional family. Those of us who are part of God's family of grace must remember that as Titus 3, 3 through 7, various passions and pleasures, you were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. In other words, we too were once like Leah and Rachel and Jacob and Laban and everybody else. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, not by anything we did to try and hide or disguise or clean up our dysfunction, but according to what? His mercy. Through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. You see, God blesses his people according to his promises and in spite of our sin. His blessings are a result of his grace and not of our works. So we should avoid fighting, be with each other. We shouldn't be against each other, but instead we ought to fight for unity with each other because we've already been given everything that we need in Jesus Christ, including Christ himself. So let's not continue in our sin. Let's not remain in dysfunction, but let's hold on to God's promises instead as we love one another and look to Jesus and help each other do that. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is God's grace for our dysfunctional family. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace incarnate. Jesus Christ who put on flesh and came to rescue us from ourselves, to defeat the power of sin, Satan, and death, to renew our lives when we don't deserve any of it. All glory be to him. Lord, would you help us to live in that freedom that grace gives us 
And the freedom that it gives us is obedience to Jesus as we joyfully celebrate our renewal in him. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to to be united to one another and keep our eyes fixed on him. We love you and we pray this all for his glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.